Hear the word of the Lord. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you. Uh, my name is Jonah, uh, and one of the pastors here. Welcome. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Y'all ready? Man, that's a little bit of excitement there. Uh, I'm excited just because it feels good to say Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. That, that second end, or the first end in Abednego, that always messes me up. Uh, crazy story. We're going to talk about it here in just a second. Uh, another crowd participation question, who likes to party? More people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego than partying. Uh, we believe in the spiritual discipline of celebration at this church, and we've been trying to cultivate that culture for a while now. Uh, we got a big party happening today. Uh, it's called Back to School Bash. Anyone want to guess what it celebrates? Uh, we have fully bought into the Bobby Gillis School of Naming Conventions. Uh, a few years ago, Sojourn probably would have named that like, like, Sparkle Shower. And everyone would be like, what is that? And it's like, oh, that's the back to school party. And it's like, and then Bobby's like, why don't we just call it back to school party? Um, so if you have no idea, if you're new to the church and don't know what we do, this is kind of a strange neighborhood where every, except for the very top 1%, every tax bracket is within about two blocks, three blocks of this neighborhood. So there's some very wealthy people and some very poor people, and we want to be kind of a neighborhood community church. A few years ago, the schools came to us and said that particularly for elementary school students, they have trouble with kids getting school supplies. Uh, it started with kids having trouble getting, bringing, being able to bring snacks. So we provide the snacks for Slate Run Elementary. And every year for four or five years now, we've provided school supplies for any kids that need it here to the local elementary schools. And so first, all of that is paid for by the members and the people who give at this church. So if you're wondering, where does all the money go? You can look in the classroom and see six or 700 bundles of school supplies for kids. That's where the money goes in a large part. So thank you guys who are giving and your generosity allows us to bless the neighborhood and students that way. And uh, this afternoon, four to six, hot dogs, uh, Oreo cookies, uh, music, and school supplies. If you are like, man, I want to serve. If you had something to do tonight, you would know right now. So if you're like, I don't have anything to do tonight, that means it's your job to come and have fun and to find somebody that maybe looks out of place, like they're kind of lost, or, you know, just if you see somebody by themselves, it's your job to go and make sure they have a good time and feel loved. It's a great opportunity for us to serve our schools and have a celebration. So hope you can come to that. Uh, we take celebrating very seriously in my family, and so we go on adventures all the time, and I've got, this is a, an, an unpaid endorsement right now for the wonder uh, that is Western Michigan, Lake Michigan. Anybody have been up there? Two people. Okay, there we go. There we go. Uh, I'm going to start calling, I, th I said it was Southwest Michigan on the internet, and then I had people direct message me saying it's West Michigan. Michiganders call it, and I was just like, whatever, man, Lake Michigan, Southwest Michigan, South Haven, Holland, that strip, Indiana Dunes up there, right there. I'm calling that the Disneyland of the Midwest. Um, 
we just went there uh, uh, 10 days ago, I guess, and this will connect to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I promise. But I have a, I have a picture that summarizes how vacation went. That, if you want to know what vacation meant for us, was that. Uh, I learned in Michigan that uh, their ice cream does not count for your normal daily calorie intake. So we ate a lot of ice cream. That's my daughter, if you're wondering, like, what is this? Uh, that's my daughter. And we ate a lot of ice cream. Uh, just as a quick side note, this is my TripAdvisor review, Yelp review. If you're up there, you got to find a place called Sherman's. It's in a terrible spot, but it's $4 for ice cream cone that's the size of your head and it's, it's delicious. They give you free coffee, and it was amazing. So we, we had a fabulous time. Um, if you're like me or my family, which I think in some ways you are, hopefully in some ways you're not, but in some ways I, I hope you are, when you get space like that and like your day, I mean really my big, in Michigan, my big decision on the day was am I going to eat ice cream today or not? Um, and that was a conversation I would have with myself from about 8 a.m. to 3 p.m., usually ending with, okay, one more time. Right? Uh, but when you, when you get space like that, uh, you tend, at least I do, start thinking about life, about family, about how's this all going. Uh, things kind of slow down the normal busyness of space or of your daily life, and, and you get some space. I know uh, in, in my relationship, if we're in the car for a half an hour or more, we're going to talk about us, right? So I know if we're going north, by the time we're in Indianapolis, we're going to be talking about how are we doing, if we go south, by the time we go to Bowling Green, how are we, you know, it's like there's a small window around. We can make it to the outlet malls going east, any farther than that, and we're having a relationship conversation. And it's good. You should talk about those things. Um, one of the things I've, I think vacation taught me this, but I've known it for a while. Uh, it's a big problem that I see, I, I think, in every marriage. Any meaningful conversation I've had with somebody in our church about marriage, this has come up. And it's definitely true in, in my marriage. Uh, one of the biggest problems is so often how misunderstood we feel. And it's, you know, like, you ever notice yourself assuming the motives of the other person? Or if, if you're married and you're having a conversation, you're like, well, I know you're just trying to whatever. And you don't know that, but you're really sure you know that. Uh, you know what it feels like when they do that to you and they're assuming your motives. Uh, you, you, you choose your words real carefully. or you know, I try to think really hard about the words I'm going to say before I say them. Maybe you don't think about the words that you say, and that's one of the big problems in your marriage is you just fire ready aim it. Um, but I think real hard about my words and then I say them and you can tell like halfway through a sentence that it's not doing what you thought it would do, right? Like, your words aren't working or they're coming out wrong and you're just kind of like ships passing in the night or sometimes, I don't know, like tomahawk missiles passing in the night, just kind of like launching at each other. And then, and then what's the result of that? Well, someone's assuming motives about you or your words come out wrong. You get defensive. You feel under attack. And so then you kind of have to bow up. Uh, you, you feel the pain of unmet expectations and just, we just miss each other feel misunderstood. And it, it produces in us a deep, I th there's an ache and a longing that I've never met a married couple who doesn't feel it. It's assuming they've been married more than, you know, six months or so. And it, the, the longing, the desire goes something like this. this these are the things that I hear. Um, I just 
want to be loved for me. You know, not for what I do, not for what I don't do. I want to be loved for who I am. I want to be accepted and cherished. I want to feel like who I am is enough. I want to feel like I'm more than just useful to you. I want to be known. I don't want to be used. I want to do this to get... See, all these phrases uh, are versions of kind of the same essential longing. I want to be accepted and loved for who I am, not just what I can do for you. In a couple of weeks after we wrap up with Daniel, we're going to do a little series on marriage. And this will give way to some opportunities we're going to have throughout the year for us to invest in our marriages. Uh, on, the back of your connect, or on, the, on the back of your bulletin, there'll be a little info about that. If you've got like kind of a burning question about marriage, or something you're really struggling with, uh, one of the weeks we're going to have kind of a Q&A devotional sermonette thing where a husband and wife from our church are going to talk through some of these questions. I, and they'll be That'll tell you how to submit those questions for the series in a few weeks. And it's important for us to talk about this, um, not just for our married couples. One, because you want this in all of your relationships, right? Uh, not just in your marriage. No one enjoys the friendship that feels one-sided. You know what I mean? Like, no one enjoys the friend who only calls when they need something. Uh, but more than that, if you're married or single... To believe in Jesus is to be called the bride of Christ. And if we want to be loved for who we are and not just what we can do, how might God feel about his spouse? And even beyond our relationships with our spouses, should you have one, um, think about our relationship with God. Like, when you love something only for what you can get out of it, it guarantees your own bitterness. If, if the only thing that keeps you in the game of love and a relationship is what you can get out of it, the only result of that will eventually be your frustration and bitterness. If not worse, relationships are meant to be reciprocal, not simply take. It's a participation in the life of another. Think about your friendships. How often do you find yourself saying something like, they don't deserve that from me? You know, I will be a good friend until you cross me and then it's all over. I can't be that way with her because she was this way with me. It's not my fault. We have all of these grown-up adult versions of basically saying, she hit me first. He hit me first. He changed. Right. Some of y'all, we had a wedding last night, a young couple in our church, 21 years old, aglow with the spring of new love, right? But they're 21. And I hear this all the time now when people are at rocky spots in their marriages, and they'll be like, well, she changed, man. We've been married for five years, and she changed. And I just want to say, no, duh. Like, think about if you're 21. Lord, please let the 21-year-olds be different when they're 27. Right? Not to say they're bad 21-year-olds, but a 27-year-old shouldn't act like the 21. And a 40-year-old shouldn't act like the... Like, you do not want to stay married for 15 years with somebody who never changes. But then we hear things like, I did what I was supposed to do, but then they did this, and they changed, and now it's... And think about our relationships with God. Some people make the mistake of thinking, you know, like, we relate one way with people, and then we relate a different way with our spouse, and then we have a different relationship style with God. And I just don't agree with any of that. I think the way people relate is the way people relate. The way you do relationships is the way you do relationships. So, 
you know, maybe you're like, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I went to church and I served in kids, but God didn't do what I asked him to, so I'm out. I can't trust him anymore. If you were here last week, we asked you to write down on a prayer card, what's the situation that you're looking at? And you're like, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with this. And we committed that we would be praying for you. And listen, you guys, it was overwhelming to read the responses. Overwhelming. The amount of collective pain and confusion and hurt that we are carrying as a church is overwhelming. Children, marriages, careers, family. Like, do you remember what you wrote? You can go back to that spot in your mind real quick last week. When you think about those kinds of complexities and heaviness, have you ever thought, well, if I do it right this week, maybe God will do that for me? So, so often, someone will come and visit our church, and they'll talk to one of the pastors, and they'll say, you know, man, I've just been running from the Lord for a long time, so I'm just kind of coming here to get a fresh start and clean up my act for God. You know, if, if we do these things, then we'll, God will turn around and provide this for me. Then, if it doesn't work, if you read the Bible every day this week and you still got fired on Friday or something like that, if you, 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 you followed through and it doesn't work, then we shake our fist at God and say some version of, I trusted you. And listen, like, I know the complexities of so many of these situations. So I would, with every bit of empathy that I have for the difficulties of the situations we are facing in church, if you're saying those kinds of things, you are not trusting God. That's not trust to say, do this or else I'm out. It's not a relationship. That's an agenda. I mean, the, the harshest thing I could say about that kind of relationship or trying to relate to God that way is, I think, it, I think it's spiritual prostitution. I will do these divine spiritual tasks for you so long as you show up with all of your divine cosmic power and do this thing for me. So listen, you will never stand in a world of chaos so long as your posture in relationships is only to take. You will not walk with God long-term or weather the storms of life if you hold tightly to your agenda. This is true in marriage, but it's true in every relationship you desire. And in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we get a picture of what can happen when people stop taking and start standing. We, we left Daniel and his friends last week being called into the king's chamber, Nebuchadnezzar's office or whatever, because he had a dream. You know, remember the dream, the giant statue, all of the different metals and materials, and Daniel says, basically, this is about the destruction of earthly kingdoms at the hands of God. And uh, <laughs> you go into chapter 3. Let me summarize again one, one more time so we don't miss the craziness here. The king has a dream about a giant statue. A man of God comes to him and says, oh yeah, this is about God destroying earthly kingdoms and asserting his rule. And in response to this, does anybody know what King Nebuchadnezzar does in chapter 3? He builds a 90-foot-tall gold statue. <laughs> one guy sees the humor in that. Oh, really, a dream about a giant statue is destroy all earthly kingdoms. I think I'm going to build a giant statue. <laughs> it's like, okay. 
So he builds a giant statue. We're not sure exactly what it was for. Uh, it's kind of like a symbol of Babylon. Their gods, their culture, everything it means. Uh, don't read too much into this. But it's like in the middle of the town when there's a, a, a huge American flag where it's like, what exactly does that represent? And it's like, it represents America, man. It's free market capitalism and democracy and whatever. You know, it's like, that's what it represents. So it wasn't necessarily something specific as far as we know that this statue was as, as much as it was a giant figure summarizing the life, culture, society of Babylon. And the king surrounds it with an orchestra. And whenever you hear, whenever you saw the statue or heard the orchestra play music, you had to bow down and worship it. So... 90-foot-tall gold statue in response to a dream about gold statues. That wasn't crazy enough. He puts an orchestra around it, tells everybody to bow when you hear the music. And now listen to the warning that went out with this decree. Verse 6. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Bow or burn. Assimilate or incinerate. You see that though, right? That's not just being, that's not just being good at words. Uh, do as we do, or we will kill you. Participate in this societal act of worship, or we will kill you. Everybody seems okay to go along with it. Except for three Jewish teenagers. I'm not sure quite how old they were at this point. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Some of King Nebuchadnezzar's advisors come up to him, and they're like, man, the Jews are at it again. They won't, do, they won't bow. So the king brings them in and reminds them, hey, listen, man, you know, this is, these are the rules. This is what will happen. He warns them of the fire, and here's, here's the response of the boys. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves from you. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He'll rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. And now y'all know what comes next. Fiery furnace. But, but before we get to the craziness that happens next, I want you We've got to see the craziness that's happening right in front of us. These three are exiles, raised in a culture demanding that they assimilate, that they become like the people around them. We, we've looked at it the last few weeks. They rejected Babylon's gods, food, customs, young men of principle, not convenience of principle. How did they get there? We looked at some of this last week. Y'all ever heard the phrase, prayed up? Are you prayed up? I talk about that with my friends sometimes. You got a serious situation or something. Are you prayed up, man? It means are you right with God? Have you been seeking his wisdom? Have you been on your face before him? Have you, have you built up the internal structures of, of your heart? Are you, are you prayed up? What did it look like for them? Daily praying, fasting, obedience for years. We looked at this last week. There were things they were praying for for two years that God had either been silent on or said no for. Man, so many of us pray for something on Monday, and if it hasn't happened by Wednesday, we're thinking about going to a new church, right? Like, God, I got about 12 hours 
These guys have been praying for years. They'd been doing faithful, obedient, just godly living for years. And it had reshaped their hearts. It had drawn them near to the heart of God. And, and in these next couple of verses, we, we see a picture of the, I don't know, the fireproof soul. So first, we get this picture of faith. Look, look at what they say here. The God whom we serve is able to save us. Boom. That's tough, right? That's kind of faith. Listen, speaking truth to power here, man. The king is coming at him. They're like, listen, the God of the universe will save us. You think he's, you, they're just not afraid because God will show up. And what's a king to a God? As Kanye would say, if you listen to that song, right? Like a king has no power over the God of the universe. And so these three are like, do what you will, king, because God is going to save us. That's faith, confidence of something that's going to happen. And then uh, faith and trust are essentially the same thing. Trust gets a little more boots on the ground here. So I think what they say right after this is a, is a real stunning picture of the trust they have for him. So the God whom we serve is able to save us. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we'll never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up for us. You see what they're saying? They, they aren't saying, God, get us out of this or else. God isn't their emergency eject button. He's, he's not their last-ditch effort. And their faith is not predicated on what God will do for them. They loved and served God because they loved God. They loved and served God for God's sake, not for their own agenda or their safety or what they could get out of Him. So they say, listen, King, here's how it's going to go. Either God will rescue us from the fire miraculously and we'll be safe, or we'll die and go and be with God and be safe. But either way, we're not compromising, so do what you got to do. If you want to stand, you, you have to learn to love God for God's sake. Or put that another way, you have to learn to see God as more beautiful and desirable than the things you want than the circumstances you are longing for resolution in. You have to see knowing God and experiencing His presence as being more satisfying and worthwhile than whatever situation you're seeking resolution for. Because here's one of the most sobering but truest promises of the Bible, and you can find this in any book of the Bible. At some point, your life will be thrown into the furnace, whether literally, metaphorically, relationally. At some point, you'll be surrounded by fire and pain. Suffering will come. Trial will come. Loss will come. I've never met someone that made it to 30 and couldn't say, I didn't vote for that. Or like, this isn't how I thought my life would turn out. At some point, I promise you, something will happen in your life that will catch you completely off guard, or you'll look at it and be like, this is not the life I signed up for. It, it, it happens to all of us. Now, if you demand your agenda, if you hold tightly to that picture, that thing that you think you want, and demand that it happen at all costs, it, it, will, it will move you to look to others only for what they can provide for you. And once you get there, the fire will consume you. The furnace will consume you. 
You'll either become a person angry at God for failing you or angry with yourself for perceived failures. And that fire will consume you. These three laid down their agendas and trusted God. God may save us, but even if he doesn't, we're safe. King gets even angrier. So I really want to watch a video of this story, and maybe when we get to the kingdom, we'll be able to see all these kinds of crazy stories happen. It says, Nebuchadnezzar cranked the furnace up hotter than it's ever been, so hot that the guys that threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire died getting that close. And that wasn't enough for the king. He goes to a spot to watch it. Like, how messed up is that? He wants to watch. He's not just going to execute him. He's got to make sure he gets a seat to watch it. So the, the young men's faith cost them something, right? They're thrown into a furnace hotter than it's ever been. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar sees. We read this in verse 25. Look, he shouted, I see four men, unbound, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. It's one of the weirdest verses in the whole Bible. One of the things, this is just side note, this really doesn't have anything to do with the sermon, but I can't shake it. What are, why are they walking around? <laughs> you see that? Like, that's one of those things that I'm like, oh, this is not made up. What a weird detail to put in the story. That, why was that in there? Because that's what was going on. They were walking around. What were they talking about with the angel? I don't know. I don't know. What would you be talking about if you were in a fire not getting burnt up? So he orders the three of them out. Where'd the fourth one go? I'll speculate here in a moment. He orders the three of them out, inspects them. Not even a hair is singed on their heads. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 28. Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. Now, what's cool about this, this could be a whole other sermon. If you want to talk about this, send me an email. We'll go get coffee and talk about it. It's one of my favorite Old Testament mysteries. This, he sent his angel all over the Old Testament. You'll see phrases like the angel of the Lord, not like Gabriel went or the angels went or the heavenly host, but you'll see the angel of the Lord or God's singular, his angel. This is the pre-incarnate Jesus. This is Jesus showing up on the scene, and I will argue with you for 15 hours about it if you want to. So when you see the angel, the angel, or the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, think Jesus. This is Jesus. This is God himself. And what's in, why I want that you to see that is because look at what is God's rescue plan for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He doesn't just like, I don't know, he could have sent a wind to go and extinguish the furnace or something. But what does he do? He goes into the fire with them. He doesn't even stop the fire. He just says, I'm going to be here, in here, with you until the king decides it's time for us to get out. This is the ultimate power that enables us to stand. Look at the progression here in these three. Daily obedience, praying, fasting, studying scripture, doing their job. What did ultimately this produce? Becoming men of principle and ultimately experiencing the presence of God. And did you see what that produced? It allowed someone else, the hardest of atheists, an angry, hostile outsider, to worship the God of the universe. And notice, they didn't give him a track. 
They didn't come out and be like, well, if you look here, let's open up our Bibles to page 17, King. And this is, like, I'm not saying tracts or Bible studies or any of that stuff is, are bad evangelism techniques. But these dudes, it was their faith, just seeing it, that inspired Nebuchadnezzar to go and worship the true God. So what is, so what for us? Cool story. Here's what happens. What does this mean for us? What do we do with this? I think one of the core invitations that's happening here that we get from these three is, is the invitation to become a people that trust God's provision. Trust that we worship a God who will make a way. So I don't know what you did this week. You know what you did this week. And even more, God knows what you did this week, right? Right, which is sometimes a bit scary. And I don't know what it was you got into, but I can promise you, like every day, we face a temptation to take matters into our own hands. Every day we face a situation that seems beyond our control or is confusing. And, you know, you're left with these two roads before you. I know the Bible says, here's a good one. Y'all been angry with somebody this week? Say amen. You lying in church. <laughs> lying in church. Seven of you. There's 200 people in this room. Seven of you got angry with another person this week. Lying in church. Remember what we talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, but they will be shown mercy. So you feel that whew, heating up, right? You got your guns ready. And as you're about to unload, you hear Jesus say, blessed are the merciful. And you get to decide, am I going to unload or holster? Like, every day, there'll be some temptation to take matters into your own hands or to trust God's leading. It may be something extreme, like building a 90-foot-tall gold statue. It may be something hugely significant in your life, like your marriage. It, it may be something small. Daniel chapter 1, like Daniel's obedience starts around food. Is some of y'all eating the things you know you shouldn't be eating? Like it's one thing to say like we're going to have an ice cream on vacation. Some of you eat ice cream on days that end in Y. I don't need that. You know. I'm not, I'm not saying that's sinful. I'm just saying you know that's not good for you, right? Like you, Daniel's obedience went down even into the food that he was eating. We all face the temptation to assimilate to the world around us. These three trusted God and knew he would provide. Did you notice how respectful they were to the king that was trying to kill them? Your majesty... I mean, they were over-the-top respectful. They weren't antagonistic. They weren't hostile. They weren't pushy or self-righteous. Well, you know we're Christians, king, who believed this, so no. They just said, listen, your majesty, we're not going to bow. They stood. They said no to the cultural pressures. They didn't go looking for a fight. They didn't go looking for the fight. But when the fight found them, they stood. And they stood tall because they trusted God would provide. We have to become a people that believe compromise will always kill us, right? Whether in the short term or the long term. We can stand when we believe that God will provide for us. He will make 
a way for us. All of his laws lead to life. All of his invitations are ultimately for our good. Even when, listen, you guys, it's not going to make sense all the time. It won't make sense all the time. The, the deeper uh, maybe clarification that we need on what this provision means is to get, take it a little bit beyond just our circumstances and our practical needs and see like the fundamental provision the scriptures are telling us God is, is willing to give to us is the provision of his presence. Because you, you, this is another huge theme. Go read the whole Bible and you'll see it. You rarely find somebody that's satisfied by an answer or an explanation. What satisfies people in their confusion and their chaos isn't a changed circumstance. It's the presence of the living God. There's something about being in the presence of the Creator God where the questions go away and the soul is satisfied. That's the secret for these men. Is they wanted God more than they wanted their agenda. They wanted to know God and experience Him more than anything else. So they saw their suffering as an opportunity to trust God, which would ultimately provide them more of God. One of two ways. Either God miraculously rescues us from the fire, which amazing evidence of God's provision, or we burn to death and then we'll go be in God's presence forever. Even more presence of God. And I'll be honest, if I have the options between miraculous rescue or burning to death, I will choose miraculous rescue, right? Like, that's what I want. But these guys said, hey, either way, one, one road's going to take a little bit longer, be a little bit more painful. Either way, this ends with us getting more of the presence of God. And it made them fireproof. Either way, they got to experience the presence of the living God. So listen, there may be times where God rescues you from death. We have stories of that in our church. God does something miraculous and shows up and you didn't die. And that's amazing. Thanks be to God when that happens. There's no guarantee that will happen for you every time. But even if it does, you will still die. You know that, right? E even if the prayers work and the cancer goes away or what, whatever the thing is or the, the way the car wreck worked out just so and you're okay, we still have to face death one day. There's no guarantee that God will miraculously save you from your physical death. That's not the promise the scriptures offer us. Yes, he may rescue you from your physical death. But the great promise of the Bible is that God always rescues you through death. In this fiery furnace, we get a picture of how God will deal with our suffering and ultimately with our deaths. He will enter the furnace with us. He doesn't wave a hand from galaxies far away. He enters the heat with us. Jesus would come and he would walk our road of suffering and loss and limitation. He would feel what we feel. He would be put on death. He would put on death for us, experiencing something that wasn't his to experience. And, and so through the death of Jesus, we can rest assured that God will provide. We can stand even stronger than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego through the death of Christ. Because we get to say things like crop participation time. For us to live is Christ and to die is gain. What in the world does that mean? It means that if we stand amidst suffering, if we face it and we don't run from it, we, we stay steady, then we get to learn something of what the heart of God is. When you experience betrayal and remain faithful, you know who else did that? Jesus. And it shows you something of the heart of Christ. You get to know him 
more as you suffer well. And this, this provides you what Paul will call the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. There's something that you learn about Jesus and God's heart for you if you suffer well like Christ did. So to live is Christ. In all of our circumstances, we get to experience the presence of Christ. And to die is gain. Why? Well, because then we get the presence of God forever. What we see partly dimly now, we will see clearly. To suffer is to join our Lord and to learn more of how He loved us, and to die is to be with Him forever. If we're willing to believe it, we're fireproof. Maybe you find yourself this morning feeling the pressure to compromise. Maybe you're here all beat up this morning because you've been compromising all week long. Maybe you compromised yesterday and now you're visiting church to make up to God for it. Maybe you're feeling the pressure of provision. You have real lack in your life. You need something to come through. You feel your need. To all that I would say, trust God. Don't compromise. Stand. And maybe in response to that, you say, I don't know how to trust God. And I would just say, you only trust God to the degree you see His hand carrying your story. You'll only trust, you'll only trust God to the degree you see and realize He's entered your furnace with you. When you see He's with you and all that He's done for you, you'll love Him and learn to lay down your agenda. And, and you'll see how beautiful and desirable He is. Some of you are in the furnace right now. Like your life's a mess. And listen, not all of that is your fault. I don't know all the circumstances, okay? But I'm just saying, for most of us, like it wasn't you listening to the book of Proverbs that got you in all that credit card debt. Know what I'm saying? It, it wasn't you trusting God's design for marriage that led you to looking at stuff on the internet you shouldn't be looking at or hanging out with those women you shouldn't be... You know what I mean? Like, a lot of us... Do you, are you just awake enough to know that a lot of the fire in your life is because of you? Right? Who, you weren't listening to God when you got there. You were listening to you. And maybe you're in a brutal enough, painful enough spot that you'd be willing to stop listening to yourself for a little bit. Can you look to Jesus, who's entered this furnace with you, who's died for you, who's risen for you, and can that just move the needle a little bit to say, how much must he love me that he would do that for me? Could he maybe have a better plan for my life than what listening to myself has gotten me? If you can see Jesus that way, if you can see the mess that you've made, You'll hold your life, your goals, your dreams loosely because what you'll really desire is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. To know and be known by the one who sees you as you are and says, I love you. you know, God looked out across the sea of humanity and said, I want you and my family and I'll do whatever it takes to make that happen. We want to be known and loved and accepted for who we are, not what we do. And in Christ, that's ours forever. So we come to communion to remember God's great love for us and the invitation to come home and rest in Christ. So we remember the, the night that he was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread 
he gave thanks for it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. Drink this and remember what I've done for you. So real, real quick, I know some of you did something really dumb this week. You did something that maybe you thought you've been trying really hard not to do for a long time. Uh, and you're just wondering, what do I need to do to make it up to God? Maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering, how do I know if God loves me? Or All this stuff sounds great, but you don't know what I've done. To which I would say, you're right, I don't know what you've done. But if you want to ask us or the scriptures, how do I know God loves me? How do I know that I'm safe with God? Our response is the body of Christ was broken for you and the blood of Christ was shed for you. And until you can find a way to uncrucify Jesus and unresurrect Jesus, you are safe with God forever. And so we would invite you to come and experience his great love for you and be compelled to trust him. Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward. There'll be stations in the back. Come forward, rip off a piece of bread. You can dip it in wine or juice. The wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it. And there'll be gluten-free elements to my left, your right. If you're not a Christian, your first step is your first step. Trust Jesus. This meal isn't for you, but Jesus is for you. So do you see how beautiful he is? Do you see all that he's done for you? If you want to come to him, if you want to know what does it mean to trust him, there'll be men and women up front afterwards that would love to talk to you about that, and you can take communion with us next week. Uh, otherwise, Christians, uh, let's come forward in just a moment. I'll pray for us, and then we can celebrate our hope together. Let's pray.